0: You're listening to the third and final part of Unexplained Season 7 Episode 14 If These Walls Could Scream 21-year-old Elisa Lamb, visiting LA from Vancouver who was last seen at the Stay On Main hostel has been missing for almost three weeks. On the morning of February 19th, Sabrina Barr a guest at the Cecil Hotel, along with her husband Michael, where the stay on Main was located, got up from bed and went to take a shower. But when she turned the dial to release the water, only a few dribbles came out of the showerhead. Turning it on full, did nothing to help. Annoyed, she tried the taps at the sink. Again, there seemed to be something wrong with the pressure. She decided at least to try and brush her teeth. After applying some toothpaste, she held her toothbrush under the water for a moment and then brought it up to her mouth. It was then that she noticed the watercolour seemed a little bit off. She put the brush in her mouth and spat the toothpaste out immediately. The water was putrid. By the time Sabrina called reception to complain, they'd already had three similar calls that morning. Around the same time, maintenance worker Santiago Lopez was already on the case. Over in the bathroom of room 720, he turned the taps at the sink and watched with revulsion as dark, discoloured water trickled into the white ceramic basin below. Santiago packed up his tools and took the elevator to the 15th floor. From there, he made his way to the roof access door, and after disabling the fire alarm he pushed open the door and stepped out into the cool morning air of the roof beyond. With the sounds of the morning traffic rising up from the streets below, Santiago climbed up the steps leading to the cistern platform containing the hotel's four large water tanks. He squeezed through to the main tank at the back, There was a small wooden ladder tucked in behind it. He grabbed it and leaned it against the tank, then started to climb. All four cisterns were completely covered over by heavy metal lids, each with an access hatch cut into it, one and a half foot square in size. Ordinarily, these hatches were left shut, but as Santiago neared the top of the ladder, he was surprised to find that this one was open and there was something floating inside the tank. Santiago pulled himself over the hatch to get a closer look, and recoiled in horror. It had just gone one in the afternoon, when Detective Wallace Tonelli received a call from Lieutenant Cheryl McWillie To let him know that a body had been found on the roof of the Cecil Hotel, the same roof his team had searched just over 10 days previously. He arrived an hour and a half later. Stepping out onto the roof under a light drizzle, Tonelli made his way up to the platform and to the top of the main water tank. Moments later, he was staring down through the hatch at the naked floating body of a young female of Chinese descent. Her long jet black hair stretched out behind her head and waved gently in the dark waters. A marbling of liver mortars covered the abdomen and much of the body had turned a pale green in color. Despite significant decomposition and skin slippage Tonelli recognized the woman's face immediately As Elisa Lambs. For the next two hours, news helicopters circled overhead as LA Fire Department 9 worked to extricate the body from the cistern. Unable to lift it out of the small access hatch, instead, the fire crew drained the tank before cutting a large hole out of the side of it. The body was finally pulled free shortly before four o'clock in the afternoon. With a light rain continuing to fall, the body was carefully laid out under a forensic tent and inspected momentarily by detectives Tonelli and Stearns before it was placed in a black bag and taken to the Department of Coroner. Once the body was removed, inside the tank, the fire crew discovered Elisa's room key and her watch as well as a pair of black shorts, a green shirt, underwear a red american apparel hoodie and a pair of black polka dot sandals they were the exact same clothes that the woman was wearing in the unsettling lift footage from january 31st confirming that it was elisa they had seen behaving strangely elisa's devastated family were informed of the discovery only moments before images of their daughter's body being taken from the water tank played out live and nationwide on the news. For Tinelli and Stearns, although never wanting to presume anything, given the circumstances, it seemed likely that Elisa had been murdered and placed inside the water tank. An assessment of the scene was quickly initiated, Tonelli ordered a dusting of the area for prints and anything that might contain DNA. Naturally, attention then turned to trying to imagine how Elisa got onto the roof in the first place, whether by her own accord or at the hands of someone else. If indeed Elisa had been murdered and incapacitated before her body was placed in the tank, it was unlikely that she'd been carried up via one of the three fire escapes. All required scaling a final vertical ladder up the side of the building before squeezing through a small square hole at the top of it to reach the roof. Such a feat would require an inordinate amount of strength, The only other realistic possibility was that she was carried through the roof access door but as Chief Hotel Engineer Pedro Tovar again insisted the door was locked and alarmed at all times although of course there was no reason to rule out the possibility that any potential perpetrator could be a member of staff with keys to the roof. Alternatively If she was murdered, Elisa may have made her own way to the roof, either willingly or under duress. It was possible, too, that she'd made her way up alone, only to later be attacked unexpectedly. Such immediate theorising was hard to resist, but for the diligent and methodical Tonelli, who was more than aware of any number of possibilities, such hypotheticals were pointless. All that mattered were the facts, and right then, they had very little to go on. He also knew only too well, that with Elisa's body likely to have been lying in the tank for over two weeks, and with no CCTV footage covering the roof, any vital evidence to the crime would have long since been washed or blown away. In the early afternoon, Elisa's body was delivered to the Hertzberg-Davis Forensic Science Centre. The building, perched just above Route 10 on the eastern fringes of Los Angeles, stands out monolithic and pristine amid a backdrop of soft rolling hills topped with desert shrubs and colourful suburban villas. Few motorists who pass the centre daily on their regular commutes would recognise the squat five-storey building as one of the leading forensic science centres in the world. That afternoon, in one of its newly constructed labs, Elisa's body was carefully laid out on a service table by medical examiner Dr. Yulei Wang. Around 5.30, senior criminologist Mark Shukart diligently took snippets of fingernail, hair and pubic hair from the body, as well as a number of swabs, before bagging it all up along with Elisa's clothes for further analysis. They hoped the tests would help to determine whether Elisa had suffered any kind of physical or sexual assault before her death. Two days after Elisa's body was taken to the morgue, Dr. Wang conducted the autopsy in anticipation of finally discovering a cause of death as detectives Tonelli and Stearns looked on. Incredibly, after three hours of procedure, the examiners drew a blank. There was no evidence of trauma whatsoever. No bones were broken and there were no abrasions or bruises in evidence on the skin and nothing was found to be obstructing the body's airways. Inside the stomach, they discovered the remains of tablets and capsules, suggesting that Elisa had been taking at least some of her medication shortly before her death. One startling discovery came when Dr. Wang investigated the chest and abdominal cavity. Elisa's lungs were filled with water, suggesting she had been alive when she entered the water tank. But with no clear cause of death, Dr Wang had no choice but to mark it down as undetermined. Frustrated by the findings of the autopsy, Tonelli and Stearns, not to mention Elisa's devastated family, who travelled down to retrieve their daughter's body, were left waiting on the toxicology report. Elsewhere, Both maintenance worker Santiago Lopez and chief engineer Pedro Tovar were spoken to by the detectives but promptly discredited as suspects. With no DNA or fingerprint evidence to suggest the involvement of unknown persons, the detectives were stumped as to how Elisa could possibly have got inside the tank. When the toxicology results finally came back, They revealed no evidence of intoxication, save for the smallest trace of alcohol, along with traces of two of the drugs that Elisa had been prescribed to help with her depression. Venlafaxine, which commonly helps to ward off suicidal thoughts, and Lamotrigine, used to prevent the onset of mania in patients who suffer from depression. Having analysed the results of criminologist Mark Shukart's swabs and clippings, it was determined that Elisa had not been the victim of a sexual assault. After another month of investigations, the LAPD detectives were left with only one explanation, that Elisa, who the police knew had a history of mental health complications, had somehow climbed into the tank herself. On June 19, 2013, Dr. Wang, in agreement with detectives Tonelli and Stearns and the Los Angeles coroner, ruled Elisa's death to be caused by accidental drowning, with her bipolar disorder considered a significant contributing factor. In a peculiar coincidence to the case, A few days after Elisa's body was discovered, Los Angeles County health officials were alerted to a serious outbreak of tuberculosis among the homeless population of Skid Row, just minutes from the Cecil Hotel. Health workers eventually called on federal assistance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in order to stem the outbreak. The causative agent of TB, is a bacteria known as Mycobacterium tuberculosis with its most common strain found in America being the type 4 Latin American Mediterranean strand or LAM for short. One popular and frequently used technique to detect the presence of antigens in the body, a substance that causes the immune system to produce antibodies, is known as an enzyme link. Immunosorbent Assay, better known by its acronym ELISA. The test kit specific to the type 4 strain of TB found in downtown LA around the same time of ELISA Lamb's death is known as the Lamb ELISA. Inevitably, due to the mysterious nature of ELISA Lamb's death, It has been poured over endlessly by internet sleuths, keen to offer all manner of theories as to how she died. Such attention was due in no small part to the questionable decision to release the peculiar footage taken from inside the Cecil building's elevator. Within hours, the clip was a creepy online sensation going viral across the globe. In China alone, after being shared on the video hosting site Youku. It was watched 3 million times, racking up 40,000 comments in just a week. Never before had an ongoing investigation sparked the public imagination in quite this way and it wasn't long before the hotel's troubled past became part of the conversation. Soon, reports emerged of strange activity said to have been occurring there for years. One woman claimed that her father, who lived at the hotel in the 1960s, had often woken in the night with the sensation of being choked. Former staff claimed guests in the room in which retired telephone operator and full-time resident of the Cecil, Goldie Osgood, was raped and murdered in 1964 Often complained of similar experiences. One couple had apparently checked into a room on the 11th floor, only to find it in a state of complete disarray, with a woman in a white dress already staying in it. After complaining to the front desk, they were led back to the room, only to find it in perfect order, ready for their arrival, and the woman nowhere to be seen. In 2014, A young resident of Riverside County apparently photographed a ghostly apparition that appeared outside a window on the fourth floor. Numerous vloggers and paranormal investigators have visited the Cecil building in recent years hoping to capture evidence of its apparent inner darkness. Some have pointed out that the 14th floor, where Elisa stepped into the elevator and was seen apparently conversing with someone, was the floor on which notorious serial killer Richard Ramirez once stayed. The inference being that maybe something of Ramirez still haunted the hotel's many narrow corridors and had somehow contributed to the young woman's death. Presumably those making such claims were unaware that Ramirez was in fact very much still alive when Elisa Lamb died. Ramirez would die five months later, after spending 28 years in prison. Whether or not a full account of the investigation into the Lamb case will ever be made public, it will remain intricately linked to the building in which it occurred. What I find interesting, however, in the absence of this explanation, is how easily we seem drawn not to those present in the hotel at the time, but to those who are no longer there. We seem unable to shake the sense that somehow, something of all that had happened previously within its walls was ultimately responsible for the horrifying event. Similarly, what spooked and inspired Stephen King so much during that terrifying night at the Stanley Hotel had nothing to do with what was present during his stay. It was because he and his wife Tabby were the only guests there. With the place due to close for the winter, the building was almost completely deserted. As King wandered the empty corridors and lifeless dining rooms, ringing with the silence of people's past, something in the emptiness bled into his mind. In classical mythology, everything from rivers and valleys to the forests and mountains were considered the domain of unseen and unnamed spirits that would have to be placated with shrines and offerings in order to bring good fortune. The ancient Romans termed these spirits genii loci, or spirits of place. Today, the term, unmoored from its theistic connotations, has come to signify something a little more abstract. Writer John Repian describes it as the echoes of people, of events, of ideas, which have become imprinted upon a location, for better or worse, the disquieting atmosphere of a former battlefield, the comfort and familiarity of a childhood home. And in my personal opinion, nowhere are these so-called spirits more noticeable than in ruined and abandoned urban archaeology. In Nicholas Geierhalter's hypnotic 2016 documentary, Homo Sapiens, the filmmaker presents us with a series of long, locked-off shots of nothing but abandoned buildings and empty, human-scarred landscapes, accompanied only by atmospheric sound, flies buzz round a long, disconnected vending machine, standing solitary in a wilderness of ferns, The interior of a crumbling, snow-covered theatre, ice melting from the rafters and dripping steadily into muddy puddles below. A deserted hospital ward, with beds placed at odd angles and the wind entering through an open window, blowing sheets of plastic about the floor. It is utterly captivating. Ruins of antiquity are not without their charm, but there is something especially evocative about this more recently abandoned detritus of human existence, mesmerizing in its sense of being both familiar and modern, yet distant and strange. I've always been fascinated by such places. At first, there is something profoundly unsettling about old and decaying structures, and how the unhuman elements of the natural world, claim them with such utter disinterest. What unsettles is their temporality. To paraphrase social and cultural geographer Tim Adenser, who's written extensively on the evocative power of ruins, writing in his book Industrial Ruins, Spaces, Aesthetics and Materiality in 2005, they present as manifestations of passing time, holding us between life and death, confronting us with the inevitability of our own obsolescence. Despite their modern familiarity, there is the distinct impression that you're in fact looking at an ancient artifact from a once great but lost alien civilization only to realize with Ozymandian horror that that civilization is ours. To observe these places, is to be left with the uncanny sense of being haunted by our future mortality through echoes of the past. Tim Adensa points out that the 18th century fashion for depicting ruins in art and the construction of follies, grand ornamental buildings with no purpose other than to stir the spirit, was, as he says, allied to a sense of melancholia, which saw ruins as symbolic Of the inevitability of life passing. These ventures were also heavily emblematic of the sublime in their attempts to conjure a sense of, quote, magical forces that remain unseen. But for Tim Adensa and myself, however, it is something a little closer that grips. While conducting research for the unexplained book, I visited some of the most entrancing abandoned places I've ever seen in the British Isles, from the eerily deserted airbase at RAF Rendlesham and the magnificent desolation of Orford Ness, to the interstitial scrublands of Middlesbrough's industrial past. In Middlesbrough, I walked along the train line from the site of German Heinrich Richter's Second World War plane crash, who, along with Carl Eden, who some believe might have been Richter reincarnated, was the subject of the first chapter of the unexplained book. From there, I moved past the towering structures of the vacant, dormen-long steelworks that has since been demolished, to the Grangetown signal box where Carl Eden was so tragically murdered. In each of these places, I was spellbound by the magnetic presence of absence. Like every deserted office, disused theatre or empty hotel lobby, all these places tell a story. They confront us with, as Tim Edenser again wrote in 2013, weird vestiges of the past, Unfathomable artefacts, cryptic signs and unfamiliar textures that we can't help but try and piece together. And once we see beyond the obsolescence of a disused space, something else begins to emerge. Ghosts. This is true for any site of past human activity, but the ones that are constructed by humans are especially evocative because they're composed from a language that we understand. As Tim Adenser notes, these places are full of signs of the past that can be intuitively grasped, even if their true significance is ultimately evasive and elusive. When we go into a derelict building or disused space, as we intuit their previous uses, much like a film projector, Our minds will conjure the past back into these places, right before our eyes. Like Stephen King, perhaps, it's almost impossible not to sense the ghostly movements of absent presences, as Tim Adenser puts it, for example, across a once bustling but now vacant factory floor, or feel the vague linger of previous guests as we make our way down an empty hotel corridor, or indeed, To hear distant, faint strains of music and feel the soft feet and flow of long-vanished revellers as we step across a disused ballroom. Because these are the traces of ourselves that we leave behind anywhere we go. Whether you believe in self-aware, autonomous ghosts and spirits or not, it is hard not to at least think of the spectral echoes Of those whose pasts we retrace as we move through all the many different spaces we share. As such, paradoxically, it isn't really the presence of the spirits of place that haunt us, but their absence. And as long as we have the clues with which to construct them, there will always be ghosts around, just waiting for us, to help them emerge. This episode was written by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, were also produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.